You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right. Good morning, Real Life. How are we doing? <laughs> uh, I'm glad to be here. Just flew in from Turkey, and boy, are my arms tired. Uh, was spent the last 10 days with Marty running around Turkey. I gotta tell you a funny story about that. Uh, so we are in a place called Cappadocia, which is, looks like the South Dakota Badlands. Like it is a barren, there's nothing there except for some really cool ruins. Uh, and we're hiking around, we're hiking up the, literally up the side of this hill to go look in this uh, 8th century church building. No big deal, it's from the 700s. And it has... Uh, fresco painting in it from the 700s, which is incredible. And when we're hiking up, we're climbing up this ladder, and I hear this guy say to me, go Cougs. Yeah. yeah, you're not excited that I was studying the word of God face to face. You're excited about go Cougs, really? So I had on a pair of Washington State shorts, uh, yeah, and uh, this guy said, Good. so this family, this family is there from McCall, Idaho. I was like, really? I had to go halfway around the world to visit a family from McCall. I, it was crazy. Anyway, it was a fun visit. They were stranded. They were on their way back from hiking around Africa, and they got stranded in Istanbul, so they just decided to stay awake and tour Turkey, you know, like you do. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to, uh, so it was cool, it was a cool connection. It was funny, like all over the world, go kooks. Uh, wanted to tell you about a couple things. First of all, um, tonight, Impact Campus Ministries having a cookout, and they wanted to invite you. If, you. if you look out in the lobby, they've got a table set up out there. We've had a partnership with Impact since before our church was a church. Um, and they really believe in small groups and discipleship. And, and, and for those of you that are new college students coming in this year, I just want to say this. The most important decision that you will make this year is who you choose to surround yourself with. Um, and this is an opportunity for you to get connected with um, other students who are like-minded in your um, desire to walk with the Lord. Uh, psychologists tell us that you are, we all are, the sum total of the five people who are closest to us, which ought to make us all pause and take note. Like, I am the sum total of the five people who are closest to me. What does that say? And so uh, that's kind of an important thing for us to know. So tonight, they're having a cookout. You can find out information about that at, back at the table. Tyler will be there. Tyler, wave, wave your hand. You can look at Tyler. Um, he's got a red impact shirt on. So you can find out information about hi- that from him. Marty will be there as well, talking about his class and some different things. The other thing that I wanted to do is we've been telling you about some of the exciting changes that have been coming, going, coming down the pike here, the Pullman campus, and we talked about Logan, and he's, he is feeling called by the Lord to go help uh, in the church plant in Missoula, which we're excited about that, uh, but that leaves a huge hole for us to fill. Um, one of the ways that we are um, helping with that is we hired Adrian, and we talked about that last week, to be in, in the role of youth pastor. We're excited about that. Wanted to introduce you to a new staff member for the Pullman campus. So Thad, come on up here. I want to introduce you to Thad DeBuer. Thaddy D, we call him. Uh, I've known Thad for 13, 14 years. Um, 
And Thad is uh, one of, he's one of those people that when, there are certain people that when you have an opportunity to hire somebody, you want them, like they're the first people that you call. And if they came, if he had come to me and said, I need a job and I didn't have any place to hire him, I would have made a place for him. Um, Like he's that caliber of leader in my mind. And so Thad is going to be stepping into the role of campus pastor for Pullman. And so he will be doing that for you guys, which is great. Um, And he will do really well with that. His son Noah is here starting high school this week uh, in Pullman. And um, his wife will be coming. They have other kids that are growing out of the house, but uh, his wife will be coming here uh, towards the end of September. She has some job things that she needs to finish up where they're coming from. And so they'll be coming here. But in the meantime, as before his wife gets here, Noah and Thad like to eat. So if you want to get to know your new campus pastor, you should have them out to your house. And uh, he, they like to eat a lot, so you prepare extra food. But anyway, this is Thad. I want to introduce you to him. He's going to be a great addition to our team. Um, we have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of exciting things coming uh, for the Pullman campus. Like, it's happening. And, and like you can tell, there's, things are moving forward here. And I'm excited. I'm excited. We need to jump into our sermon because we got miles to go before the sun sets. And this is a... This is one of those technical sermons, in part because of the material itself, in part because there's so much misinformation about the passage that we're going to talk about today. And so uh, if you're new here, you have to understand that my central premise for this whole book of Revelation is that we cannot understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for the first readers. Whatever it meant for them is then what we can apply to our life. But we can't make stuff up and make it mean other things that it didn't mean for them. Because this book of Revelation, which has been made so confusing, it wasn't written for you and I. It was written for real people in a real place at a real time. Now, it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we can certainly use that and apply it to our life, but we have to understand it in the context in which it was written originally. Does that make sense? So that's really important for us to grab a hold of, especially as we talk today about the two witnesses, which if you've got any kind of revolution, revolution, revelation bug in you, um, you're like, oh, the two witnesses, oh, that's all I'm talking about. I'm not going to take time to put my case against everybody else's case. Uh, I'm just going to tell you that I'm right, <laughs> and um, everyone else is wrong. So all the scholars in history have been wrong, and I am the only one. No, actually, I'm a part of a group of people, like I'm not, this isn't my idea, I didn't come up with this on my own, but I agree with it, and, and I agree with it because it's rooted in the context, it's rooted in the context into which it was written, and so that is important, okay? So let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to try to cover 10 and 11 today, we'll see how far we get. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, he's the first one to get the rainbow wigs, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll. He had a little scroll open in his hand. A little scroll in his hand. Oh, it's a little scroll. And he <laughs> set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So we're going to have to talk about that. What does that mean? And called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Rawr! And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, 
Uh, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down, which is weird. It's weird that he's told not to write it down because this whole book began with, you're gonna have a vision, I want you to write it down. And now we're in the vision and he's trying to write it down. They're like, yeah, don't write this part. Don't write this part. Don't write this part. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, let's back up and let's start pulling this apart. Who's this angel? What does it mean that he has a, a foot on the land and a foot on the sea and all that stuff? I wanna show you a picture. Uh, of This is actually a, a panel, a sculpture from, uh, that was actually, it was already made at the time that this letter was written, but it's very important in the time that this letter was written. So let's throw the picture up. Uh, pardon the, the nudity. Um, it's been fixed so that it's not actually nude. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but so many things I'd like to say right now about this picture. But this, this is important because what's going on here is that in the ancient world, they didn't have the six o'clock news, they didn't have newspapers, and they didn't have the internet. So the way that they communicated ideas, worldviews, values, stories, things about how they believe who's in control and who isn't in control, the way that they communicated that was two primary ways, number one, through sculpture, and number two, through coins. So when significant things would happen, they would commission sculptures, or they would mint a coin. And so these are ways that they would tell the world what's going on. Now, this is a five foot by five foot square. It's a relief as part of a big um, pantheon that runs down the, a street in a town called Aphrodisias. I was just there last week. This actually, if you come with me next June um, to Turkey, which is Asia Minor, it's the New Testament. People go, why do you want to go to Turkey? Um, Seven Churches of Revelation, Paul's missionary journeys. Um, over half the New Testament is written to Asia Minor. So I'm there. Uh, come, come check it out. It's pretty awesome. But this is in a town called Aphrodisias. It's actually in a museum. This, this panel is actually in the museum at Aphrodisias. We will actually be able to look at it face to face. Um, so what's going on here is, first of all, uh, I, I want to show you how this communicates meaning and purpose. This is Emperor Claudius. And what's going on here is, first of all, Emperor Claudius is nude. Anytime that you have imperial nudity in sculpture, what we understand that to mean is this represents imperial deity. So imperial nudity represents imperial deity. This, from the get-go, the first thing that we're going to notice about this sculpture is that it's communicating to us that Emperor Claudius is a god. Okay, now that's a particular worldview that is communicated through this that the ancient world would have picked up on that we just go, hey, put on some clothes. Like we miss it, but that's communicating a worldview that the emperor is a certain kind of person. Does that make sense? So he's, he's a god, and what we see here is that he's, first of all, he's got his, his, his uh, feet over two women. This one on the right side is a woman who has a tail like a fish. Can you see that? She's like a mermaid. And this one over here is a woman who's holding, and this is difficult to see, but she's holding a cornucopia that's got grapes coming out. This woman here represents the sea. This woman here represents the land. This sculpture is communicating to us that Emperor Claudius, who is a god, has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. He is in control over everything. This is how they communicate I'm the boss. I'm in control of everything because I'm in control of the land and the sea. 
you can't control just the land or just the sea and actually be in control. So in the Roman world, this is how they said, we're in control of everything. Are you with me on this? So if we go back into the passage, what John says about the angel is that he has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Why does he communicate this about the angel? Because he's trying to communicate that the angel is in control. Now remember this, this is written to a people who are under a tremendous amount of persecution. One of the foundational questions that we ask ourselves when we're in difficult circumstances is where is God? And what John is communicating is that God's in control, he's got this, it's okay. Which raises a whole other set of questions Welcome to the rest of chapters 10 and 11, okay? So, uh, we're gonna, so we have to know this, that that's what, that that's what that's talking about, okay? Now we're gonna talk a little bit about the little scroll. The little scroll, he's got a little scroll in his hand, but we're gonna read on a little bit more uh, chapter 10. So let's continue reading. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to the sound of by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, this is why John can't write it down. Because it's gonna happen so fast that writing it down would take too long. It's already gonna be done before he writes it down. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. There's not gonna be any delay to this. This is gonna happen, but don't write it down because it's gonna be done before you get it written down. That's important because what he's communicating here is the resolution of the persecution that these people are enduring. He's like, yeah, it's real, it's happening. Don't worry about it though because it's not gonna last very long. Good news. Let's read on. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Give me a little little scroll. Oh, look at the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. (laughs) It'll make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. Now, what is going on there? What is that? It's sweet, but it makes my stomach sour. Okay, step back and let's look at the imagery. The imagery, and this is not just John. This is taken from all over uh, apocalyptic literature. Anytime that I take the word of God and I ingest it, that is me receiving a message from the Lord. Make sense? This happens in Ezekiel. Read Ezekiel chapter one. This is actually a direct pull quote out of Ezekiel. It happens in Daniel. It happens in Jeremiah. It happens in Isaiah. They take the the word of God and they ingest it. That's him receiving from God a word, okay? That word is sweet when he speaks it, but it's bitter internally. Why? Well, think about this. Any time that the Lord has plagued you with a vision of something that he wants for your life, like there's this, when you talk about it, it's like, 
And people can sense it. Like when you're talking about God's purpose for your life, it is more than just conversation. Like the words are somehow supernaturally, when you watch somebody who is living in the vision that God has for their life, it's, it's unique. It's, like when I watch my wife sing, did you see my wife singing up here? Oh my goodness. Like that's a voice I could fall in love with. But there's just some, like it's not, she's not mouthing words. She's ushering us into the presence of God, right? Like that is who she's made to be. When you watch somebody who is living in the vision of what God's made them for, like it's, they're alive. It's supernaturally empowered. The problem is the cost. Not just, think about this, not just for John. But this invitation of living out this vision of the kingdom of God, the people that are buying into it, it's costing many of them their lives. Like it's sweet to talk about it. There's this fire, this, this thing in it that's supernatural, but the truth is walking it out is hard. It, he's plagued with this vision, this, this churning inside of the reality of what it's gonna invite people into but compelled to speak it nonetheless. Leaders live in this tension. It is so interesting to me, as a church leader especially, it's interesting to me to, to be given a, like, God gives you a vision. So I've been in a lot of reflection mode because the church is coming up on 10 years, right? It's like this is a big anniversary. And... Um, God gave us a vision for what he wanted this church to be 10 years ago. What's been so interesting to me is to watch how people, some people have responded to it, some people have bought into it, whatever. The way that people have tried to knock us off vision and even diabolically oppose it, like vindictively oppose it. Like the tension of living and, and having to respond. Because foundationally, here's what I believe. I believe that our church ought to be a place where we treat people the way that Jesus would treat people. Like it's a novel concept that God's followers would actually act like him. And that we would be kind and gracious and, and compassionate and forgiving and, and actually work at wholeness and healing and freedom in our life, like that we would actually do that. And, to, and so for me, I'm like, yeah, like if you want to watch me get fired up, let's talk about that. I'll be like, man, if we could, if we could just people, get people over themselves, you know, like if... To watch people be like, not only no, but no, I will not be nice. Like, it's so interesting to me. And the, the stances that people, I'll be nice to you, but you're dead wrong and dumb and stupid. Like pe people take that position. It's so interesting to me to watch this, to be plagued with the vision of what, you, what God has laid in your life about what the church could become and to watch people not buy it. This is what it means that it's sweet on his mouth, but it's sour in his stomach because there's a churning. This, Paul gets this idea, and, then, and when he says, he says this, he starts to list all of his persecutions. I've been flogged. I was beaten next number of times. I was shipwrecked. I was this. And then he says at the end of this long list of terrible things, he says, above all else, above all of that, I have the burden of caring for the churches. 
Like there's this price to pay. It's sweet, the idea, talking about it is sweet, but the walking out of it is this gut-wrenching thing. It's sour in the stomach. If you've had kids, you understand this. To talk about your dreams for your kids and watch them make stupid choices, right? Like what happened to your brain? You were smart and then puberty. Like what? Please, you college students that are away from home for the first time, hear my heart as a parent of two college-age kids. Your parents only want the best for you, even though you think that they're holding you down. And you cause ulcers. (laughs) Ulcers. Love talking about my kids, but all the gut-riching moments of being a parent, right? Right? This is what John's talking about, this scroll, this message of God that is given to him. He's gotta get it, he's gotta speak it. He's gotta get it out. He's gotta give it to the people he has to. And it's sweet to talk about it, but oh, it's gut-wrenching. This is what he's talking about here. Okay, let's read on. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. End chapter 10. Let's open with chapter 11. And then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it was given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, what the heck? Um, What is going on here, right? So first of all, Gentiles are trampling the holy city. What's the holy city in the New Testament? It's the church. Say the church. Thank you. You guys are perceptive. You knew exactly where I was going. Good job. And they're going to trample over the church for 42 months. Okay, why do I need to know that? Well, here's why. Because 42 months happens to be three and a half years. And you're all like, oh, of course, it's three and a half years. Let's read on. We'll come back to it. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. You're going to want to circle that. My two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Oh, well, why do I need to know 1260 days? Here's why because it's 42 months, which is three and a half years. Oh. Here's the, here's the guts. You ready? And then we're going to talk about the two witnesses because this is actually what I want to talk about. The guts of this is three and a half years is half of seven. Seven is the number that represents completion. What John is saying is prophesy over these people. The Gentiles are going to trample the courts for three and a half years. It's just going to be a little bit of time. They're not doing it forever. There's an end to this. The story that matters in the Gentiles trampling the holy city isn't the Gentiles trampling the holy city. It's that we endured because the witnesses are the ones who actually give us today the fortitude to help actually put the world back together. 
Now remember in the story of Revelation so far, there's been the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and all this stuff. These are all ways that the world tries to put itself back together. Remember we talked about kings and we talked about finances and we talked about war and military power. These are all ways that the world tries to manage controlling things, but they don't work. What works in putting the world back together? Faithfully living out God's commands in the midst of chaos. And think about it. Why do you and I need the scriptures so badly? We need them because these are stories of people who face circumstances just like we're in, and they, they made it. They did, and some of them didn't do it, and it didn't turn out well. And some of them, they made, they endured. And, and because of their endurance, because of their perseverance, because of who they are and how they lived, we sit in this room today. Like, understand that this call that John makes is like, it's gonna be hard, but hang in there because it's temporary and people need to hear your story. You and I owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude because the testimony of our faith is built upon a foundation that they laid in some really difficult circumstances. You've got to endure. It has an end. It's only three and a half. It's not seven. That's apocalyptic language for it ain't going to go very long, so just chill out. Now, let's talk about these two witnesses. Uh, go back. There we go. Uh, clothed, they were prophesied for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord's there. So let's stop there. Now, two witnesses. Who are they? There is so much information out there about people speculating about who they are. You ask anybody who came out of the Jewish world who the two witnesses are. Guess who they'll say? Moses and Elijah. Okay, why? <laughs> why those guys? Uh, well, because Moses as a character represents what part of the scripture? The law. Elijah as a character represents what part of the scripture? The prophets. The entire law and the prophets testify to this truth. So when you have Moses and Elijah, what you're saying is all of the, of the Hebrew Bible, all of our Old Testament testifies to this truth. And it's confirmed in the matter of these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. By the way, who shows up at Jesus' transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but primarily because we need to confirm who Jesus is with the presence of two witnesses. Now, how do we do that? We do that with Moses and Elijah. Make sense? Now, here's the kicker. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. These are the Old Testament scriptures. What he says here is, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And you're like, no way. What even is that? Right? Remember way back at the beginning of this series when we talked about the lampstands and where they come from. The olive trees and the lampstands are a direct pull out of the book of Zechariah. The olive tree always, and it's rare to say always, the olive tree 
always represents the people. The lampstands represent the people as well. In this passage, what he's saying is that the testimony of the two witnesses, the testimony that the scriptures, what the scriptures say is valid, it's rooted in you and me living out our story correctly. The problem for the American church is that we come to church and because we don't really understand persecution, we come and we hear really interesting truths, we hear really interesting things, and we go, wow, that was intriguing. That was creative. He's a good speaker. I was interested. I liked it. Or we say, I was a bit over my head and he, was, he didn't really tie that illustration down. I didn't, understand. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I promise you, these people didn't like this message. But it was true and must invade their lives regardless. And so the question is not whether or not I liked it. The question is, what am I going to do with it? These people walked out their testimony consistent with the story that God was telling in the scriptures. And because of their faithfulness, you and I sit in this room today. Understand that. This wasn't about whether or not they liked it or they didn't like it. Or they was, I was confused. I was a bit dazed with that. I was a little distracted. It's about what you're going to do with their testimony. What are you going to do with the fact that these people, they weren't endured, like, uh, sorry, I'm running out of time and I'm trying to race and skip stuff in my head and it's really hard. This is why you stay in a marriage that you don't want to be in. This is why you stay at a job where your boss treats you poorly. This is why you engage in certain activities in a community and you don't engage in certain other activities. This is why you can tell certain kinds of jokes, but other kinds of jokes probably you shouldn't tell. This is why you live the way you live, because it tells a particular story about who your God is. And if you don't tell the story correctly, then you can't endure. Ah, like, does that matter? Yes, you have, you have crappy circumstances. Let's acknowledge this. Some of your stuff is really hard. It's really hard. Yes, some of it is. Now, some of it's pretty awesome because you live in America and you have a house and a TV, which puts you way ahead of a lot of people, right? But some of it's hard. It is. It's hard. It is. And we have all this emotional baggage and we have all these people that are inviting us into all this temporary thinking and, and losing our focus on what's eternal. This is the world we live in. It's exactly the world they lived in too. And what John says is, endure. Don't lose sight of what you're here for. By the way, I want to anchor into this. Let's read on. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Now let's anchor these two witnesses. This is what we're talking about is these two witnesses. So they have fire, or power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall. Who did that? Elijah. For how long? Three and a half years. 
Next. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. What's that, what's that in reference to? Moses and the Exodus. So who are our two witnesses? Moses and a lot. Come on. Like anybody who knows anything about their text would go, of course. Of course that's who it is. Uh, as, what happened? Uh, blood strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So this is what's going on. These two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. It's the law and the prophets. It's the scriptures. But more than that, the two witnesses are the olive trees. They're the scriptures lived out in our lives. Can you, do you see the connection there? This is so critical for us to grab a hold of because what John is gonna say to these people again and again and again is yes, it's hard. This is terrible. What we're going through is awful. It gets knots in my stomach. But for those that endure, the crown of glory waits. And it's not gonna be easy. I can just promise you it's gonna be worth it. With that in mind, we're gonna to move towards the Lord's table. And so if you're new with us today, I wanna to say this to you. We have an open table at our church. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold those elements till the end and we'll take them all together. So while they're passing that out, I wanna work through some implications, some possible applications for our sermon this week. Let's look at the first one. God's created order is eternal. Everything else is temporary. And the world is going to invite you into temporary thinking. I want to think about this. Let's say that we took a piece of dental floss and we start in the upper corner over here in this corner of the room and we, wrap, we start wrapping the room and we go round and round, round and round and round, all the way around till the whole wall, all the way around, all four walls full with dental floss. One piece. First of all, it's a lot of dental floss. Now let's say that, that the length of that piece of dental floss represents the timeline of eternity. Okay? Now we'll take a Sharpie marker. Thank you. And with that Sharpie marker, we're gonna find one strand on that piece of dental floss and we're gonna put a dot with the Sharpie marker on that piece of dental floss. That dot represents the timeline of your life. Which one do you want to live for? See, the problem is today, what, we, what we're taught to think, what, we're, what the culture tries to get us to think is that today is all there is. And what I would suggest is that the Bible teaches us that there's this great and glorious eternal future for us if we'll just hang in there. Don't sell out the line for the dot. When we make decisions about who our friends are gonna be, when we make decisions about where we're going to spend our time, what kind of activities we're gonna engage in. Is it about the line or is it about the dot? Because too many of us become con conflicted with God's created order because we're trading eternal things for temporary things. Next implication. When others oppress you, pray for light, pray for truth, and pray for our Messiah. This is a piece I didn't take time to build very well. Uh, Elijah's light, Moses' truth.
It's the two representations. When we struggle, when we're in difficult circumstances, when other people are oppressing you, and they will try, when they do, pray that the scriptures will show you what you should do. It's amazing. And by the way, I have good news for you. You can try to do this by yourself. I have better news for you. You'll fail if you do. You'll fail if you do. You're not wired to try to do this by yourself. You're wired to do this in community. You need relationships with people who will help you. People who can keep, you guys can keep one another focused. That's why we do small groups in our church. If you're not in a, in a care group, you need to get in one. Because we can't do this by ourselves. It's too easy to compromise. Next implication. God's people are the prophetic witness to the world, particularly in times of trial and tribulation. Please hear me in this. When you endure bad circumstances well, you tell the world a great story about who your God is. Now that's not masochistic. That's not us going, well then bring on the pain, right? Like nobody enjoys suffering. But enduring it well, that helps us be able to tell the world about who our God is. That's why the, like Hebrews 11, the, they call it the hall of faith, this great chapter, so important in the Bible. I love the chapter, especially the first half. I love that by faith, Abraham did this and awesome. It was awesome. And then Isaac did this by faith and it was awesome. And then Jacob and he did this and it was awesome. And there was all these, they had faith and then it was awesome, right? Then there's the second half of chapter 11. And then there was these other people who were sawn in two and thrown in prison and tortured and their families were killed. And he says this, and the world was not worthy of them. Yeah, it was hard. You watch your child be butchered for your testimony. Yep, that's hard. The world wasn't worthy of them. And they did it. They actually pulled it off. And that's why Hebrews 12 is so important since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. People like that. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the glory set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Like, yeah, he had a pretty glorious story, but he had to endure the cross to get there. This is the invitation of the book of Revelation, chapters 10. 11. It's a call back to what communion is all about for us. It's a call back to the fact that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood just shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, I just want to 
pray for each of us. Lord, none of us want pain and persecution. None of us want that. But Lord, as we face the trials and temptations of our life, I pray, God, that you would give us the courage and the fortitude to deal with those in a way that glorify you. Lord, rally us around one another so that we can be a group of people that holds one another up, that keeps us running in the right direction when we all struggle. Lord, thank you for your love and your grace in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.